You're listening to Works of Justice by PEN America. The small piece of bread sits alone on the concrete floor where it was laid some time before unmolested, eliciting no corresponding activity from the crack only inches away. I am worried because the cell block was flooded the night before and the crack spent nearly the entire night submerged, the water having receded only several hours earlier. The bread is closer to the crack than I've ever placed it before, and still the ants haven't come for it. The discerning part of me already knows there is no way they could have survived. Yet I continue to sit here, waiting, holding on to this ridiculous hope. What else is there to do? I find myself wanting to cry, to break down and weep. No, that's not it. It's more than that, I realize. I want to die, truly. An ant appears then, unexpectedly, squeezing his way out of the jagged seam and taking off at a run. My spirit soars, and quickly he is followed by others. I am Rebecca Carroll, and I am reading Gardner's Memory by Catherine Lafleur of Homestead Correctional Institution in Florida City, Florida. We were gardeners of easily tamed plants with names that sounded vaguely erotic. Dancers, big boy, luscious leaf, climax. Our hearts hungered like the belly at night. My teeth dreamt of sinking into ripe flesh. We grew gardens of easily tamed plants, tomatoes marshalling in orderly rows, firing over the heads of tender kneeling lettuce, beans twirling sinuously up poles, every plant obedient to the garden rules until the year of melons. Standing at the back fence of this small prison, staring into the outside, I sprinkled dried seeds of cantaloupe, watermelon, honeydew, stolen out of the prison trash, hoping not to be easily tamed. One day, I will grow far enough away and free of this concrete steel garden. January 2nd, 2017, 5 a.m. in the shower, our power fails. Wet and naked and dark, we scream. Outside, the sky Frankensteins over our red castle like it's at war with itself. Five bolts at once, playing bright notes, left, right, from white chapel steeple to black guard tower, Horseshoes and snipers, race lines five miles long. They heard us out, stairs by flashlight, scrotums dripping. 
The wind swirls, hot and cold together. They pop our cage doors with a pry bar. They count our faces, our bunks, our feet. They are afraid too. Radios and keys and voices. Now I write by lightning light. Storm flicker, no thunder, only silence. Heavy pains, pitter-patter. Zeus' fingers climb, one, two, three. Some strands red, God knows why. He's in here, in hell's veins. Dance, sky, dance. Like the clouds are killing each other. Battleships, anvils, Jesus Christ. Blind with awe, I cannot sleep. Beholding worlds within worlds of fire. Virgin thunder, rifle shot, split-second sculptures, scabrous red. We all watch, silent as a church, as brightness gives way to rain and gray. I'm losing the muse now. Guess I'll retire my pencil. I stop when it becomes more about the writing than the seeing. Hello, my name is John Ray, and I'm going to be reading The Centaur Sun, which is an excerpt from an essay by Burl N. Corbett at the State Correctional Institution in Albion, Pennsylvania. And this essay has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize. When I look back now at the age of 67, it seems as if I were predestined to become a writer. How else can I explain all the coincidences and twists of fate that led me toward eventual publication? The journey began with my birth in 1947 on a sheep farm in southeastern Pennsylvania. As I lay in my crib, sleeping only three crow miles away in another small sandstone farmhouse, was a 15-year-old boy who was dreaming of graduating from high school and leaving for Harvard. His name was John Updike, and although our paths wouldn't cross for another 36 years, when they did, my life would change. My grandmother was one of the last one-room school teachers in the county, and she taught me to read when I was only four. When my kindergarten teacher discovered that I could read, she allowed me to read the other children to sleep after lunch. Then as I stayed awake, lost in the word, she sneaked a quick cigarette or flirted with the janitor. During my elementary years, I read everything on my father's bookshelves, from the bombastic twaddle of the Bomba the Jungle Boy juvenile series to the unabridged version of Moby Dick. In addition, I tore through the school's classroom libraries, culminating in an orgy of reading in sixth grade when I set an unapproachable record of writing one-page book reports on the 150-odd books that I had read. And somehow, I had found the time to write a series of fantastic sci-fi tales set on each of the nine planets, my first creative attempts. I continued reading heavily, if indiscriminately, throughout junior high, finding that I had an affinity for the gritty urban realism of Nelson Algren and James T. Farrell and the lurid white trash tales of Erskine Caldwell. But when I found my father's hidden copy of Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer when I was in the ninth grade, suddenly my definition of literature evolved. This, I told myself, is how I want to write. 
Although I overheard my father dismissing Miller as just another pornographer, I was captivated by his unique style, his love of language, and above all, his passion. His fervent criticisms of America's failure to live up to her promises, even though written in the 30s, would soon be appropriated by the social critics of the 60s and his sexual hijinks rendered quaint by the decade's rapidly declining morals. But he instilled in me the belief that I could succeed if only I kept trying. And he introduced me to authors I had never heard of. Lawrence Durrell, August Strindberg, Note Hampson, and a host of 19th century French and Russian writers, among others Flaubert and Gogol. Miller, an autodidact himself, was the breed's best teacher, an irony that did not escape me. Then in 10th grade, the first of my coincidences occurred. My new English teacher, Mrs. Ethel Lipnack, was a native Brooklynite who by some unfathomable happenstance had made landfall at my backwater high school. The first day of class, she asked each of us to write a personal essay that described our aspirations and hopes. The length and language were up to us. It wouldn't be graded, and no one except her would ever read it. Most of my classmates suspected that the assignment was a ploy by her to gain the whip hand over us, and either refused to comply, the essay was strictly voluntary, or warily scribbled a few paragraphs of inoffensive blackmail-proof pap. <laughs> but I, who was in danger of becoming what was then called a juvenile delinquent, wrote a lengthy Miller-inspired screed that explained in surrealistic excess why I hated school and intended to become either a professional trapper in the Alaskan wilderness or a renegade writer, a la Henry Miller. After I handed it in, I half expected to be hauled before the principal, a dour ex-Marine, notorious for his utter lack of humor. <laughs> but instead, Mrs. Lipnack complimented me for my audacity, praised my small talent, and encouraged me to continue writing. I'll read anything you wish to write, she promised. And just like that, a potential troublemaker who ran with the wrong crowd was gently nudged onto a different path. When I confessed my admiration for all things Miller, she disclosed that she had grown up in the neighborhood that he had described in Black Spring and Tropic of Capricorn. She even remembered Miller's witchy, bitchy wife, June, striding down the block in a long black cape, wielding a foot-long cigarette holder like a scepter. And while Miss Lipnack deplored Miller's excessive sexual passages and as a Jew was leery of his borderline anti-Semitism, she never criticized my choice of reading material. She was an old school liberal who would defend to the death the right to free expression. So she read my bad poetry, introduced me to Faulkner and, the, and Hemingway, and proofread my manuscripts. Her class became a welcome oasis in the intellectual desert of my provincial high school, a sterile wasteland staffed by a goodly number of incompetents, not so secret boozers, a practicing pedophile, a semi-lonely fabulist, and a depressing variety of shop-worn geezers limping unsteadily to retirement. <laughs> Ms. Lipnack convinced me that I had talent, gave me courage, showed me the way, 
I looked forward to her daily class. And then one morning, she wasn't there. Her husband had died. The substitute teacher, a tall, lanky, shabbily dressed gentleman in his 60s, introduced himself as Mr. Updike and informed us that he'd be our teacher until Mrs. Lipnack returned. He admitted that he had no idea what we had been studying, mostly nothing. Ours was what was called the general class, whose fate was to accept our diploma with the left hand, pick up a shovel or wrench with the other, and proceed forthwith to the nearest ditch or factory. So he expressed his intention to just talk about whatever crossed his mind (laughs) with the hope that we might learn something that would serve us in life. Then he began to speak, and what a performance it was. Leaping from subject to subject like an ibex sporting atop the Alps, he paced nervously to and fro, cast beseeching looks at his befuddled audience. His style was that of a gifted, if slightly confused, bard. And he not only overcame the initial hostility of our disinterested class, but won it over by dint of his charismatic personality. For three days, each class was more of the same, extemporaneous disquisitions on whatever his hyperactive mind lit upon. He mentioned his son's recently published novel, Rabbit Run, in passing admitting that its theme was probably a bit too mature for our tastes. And it was evident that he had little expectations that any of us would ever read it. During Mr. Wesley Updike's brief tenure, our class may not have learned how to diagram sentences. I doubt if even H.L. Mencken could have taught us that. But over 40 years later, not a single class reunion attendee had forgotten him. And when I eventually read his his son John's fictionalized tribute to his father, the centaur, I immediately recognized its hero as the man who had held our semi-civil class of rural hooligans spellbound until Mrs. Lipnack returned from burying her husband. A novel-worthy feat, if there ever was one. The poem I'm going to read is by Spoon Jackson, uh, titled No Moon. I was afraid this would happen the way the night looks with no moon, the way the wind whistles off the back porch. You want to love me. How can I tell you I have a life, but I don't have a life? What can I tell you? Shall I tell you about the bars that don't speak or the razor wire that longs to sever the throat or the cold winds that bounce off the emptiness? Shall I tell you about the trees 200 yards away across the river of electric wire, how the trees haunt me like the smell of barbecue, the scent of a mountain meadow, the sight of crimson painted toes? Across the river, across the fields, across the hills, there is wine that belongs to no one. What can I tell you? Shall I tell you about the lovely women I never had? Shall I tell you about the moon fading away like a piece of hard brown candy? I was afraid this would happen the way the night feels with no moon, the way the wind whistles off the back porch pushing on the screen door like ten cats, like ten mad men fighting. 
what they have written. Um, this is by Julian Concepcion. It's called Beauty, and I hope that he can uh, feel that we are reading this wherever he is. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Behold, it is I. You say I'm beautiful. You say I'm not. What is beautiful? I started working at Coney Island Freak. I was a live human target for paintballs. At first, my boss lost money because people said I was too cute to shoot. He told me, look mean, look ugly, look miserable. I let my hair grow. Whatever paint splashed on me from the paintball guns, I would not wipe off. Now I was getting shot. I was making money. My boss was making money. Why? What is beauty? Why can you shoot ugly? Why not beauty? As time went by, I started playing with my image. I knew ugly, mean, miserable was. So how you say shootable? But what else could be shot? More importantly, what else could not be shot? I dressed in comical costumes. I was a pirate. I put on wigs and masks. One day I even wore a Spider-Man costume, a few sizes too small. All these were shootable. After my second year working at Shoot the Freak, carrying a 40-pound wooden shield, a paintball helmet and mask, umpire chin guards, hockey pants, a cup, and dodging paintballs, my body became what they call sexy, hot, attractive, and any synonym for beauty. I was once again losing money. Why? Why can't they shoot beauty? I now had to wear sweaters and hooded sweatshirts to hide my body. Here come the shooters. Here come the shots. Here comes the money. They shoot funny, they shoot mean, miserable, ugly, dirty, skinny, fat, black, white, purple, green, red. Yes, I even use body painting. They don't shoot beauty. On July 4th, the temperature was 97 degrees. I had no costume, no mask, and no sweatshirts. However, I was behind the shield and helmet, jumping, dodging, running, weaving. Step right up, step right up. We have a live human target, a live moving target. Step right up and shoot the freak. The shooters kept coming. We had eight paintball guns. When one emptied, the customer paid to shoot. It was a revolving door. A never-ending shooting spree. Step right up and shoot him. I was running, running, running. 97 degrees hot. Running, running, shooting, shooting, running. A live human target. I ran for one hour, 30 minutes, still running. Tired. I have paint in my eyes mixed with sweat and sand and tears, tears, tears. The fatigue and pain were so unbearable. I was crying and running and crying. I was dodging and weaving and crying quietly. Finally, someone remembered I was a human target. A wise guy in the crowd says, give the freak a little break. I was human. I put the shield down. Actually, I dropped the shield. I didn't have the strength to put it down. My body was covered in pain and muscles. The crowd grew silent. I waited a while before I took off the mask. I didn't want them to see my tears. I hear, he's so sexy, cute, blah, 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 blah. Finally, I take off the mask. Everything is silent again. The shooters put their guns down and refuse to shoot. They say they are done. They don't even want their money back. My tip bucket fills to the max, and everyone stares while I clean paint and sand out of my eyes while I rest and drink. No one shouts. No one shoots. When I was tired, running, crying, dodging, weaving, and ugly, everyone shoots. Now, no one shoots. You guys are ugly. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Behold, it is I. This piece is by Yvette M. Louisel. 
I'd like to thank Miss Louisel for writing this amazing story. It's called How to Survive in Prison, a brief history of my first 23 years at the Iowa Correction Institution for Women. 1988, pretend you're not really in prison. 1989, pretend you're not really in prison for life. Sleep as much as possible. 1990, lose your grandma Lucita cancer. Try to find a better lawyer. Watch TV when you're not sleeping or writing attorneys. 1991, celebrate turning 21. Write 10 page letters to everyone you know. Write five page letters to people who know people you know. Fall in love with a Marine stationed in Iraq. 1992. Wait for a court date for your first appeal. Read anything you can find. Try to get your family to visit you. 1993. Lose your appeal. Learn to circumvent, break the rules from other inmates. Let someone's girlfriend turn you out. Get beaten up by the girl's girlfriend. Live for visits from your marine boyfriend. 1994. Find out your boyfriend gets married. Spend as much time in the yard as possible. Learn to fit in. Become someone's girlfriend. Stop thinking about the outside world. Stop thinking that being good is going to get you anywhere. 1995, start taking college classes. Study whenever you're not with your girlfriend. Wonder why the food is suddenly getting so bad. Wonder why the officers are getting so strict. Wonder why the prison is changing so much. 1996, find out your boyfriend got divorced. <laughs> Live for visits from your boyfriend again. Write 10-page letters to everyone you know, again. File another appeal. 1997, say goodbye again when your boyfriend moves to California. Get a new girlfriend. Get in a lot of trouble. Go to the hole with your girlfriend. Figure out that she's bulimic. Figure out that she's cheated on you with half the prison. Figure out how to survive a broken heart in prison. 1998, get another girlfriend who occasionally beats you up. Be happy when she calls you her wife. Go to the hole together. Leave her for someone else who doesn't beat you up. Get out of the hole. Get back with your wife. Graduate from a community college with honors. Wonder why the prison is suddenly issuing everyone a pair of recycled stained panties each morning instead of giving you your own to keep. 1999, get a job as a tutor. Get to see your grandma Ethel who lives in Ohio. Get a girlfriend who goes by the name football. Find out that your boyfriend is getting transferred. Live for visits from your boyfriend again. Start working on your legal case again. 2000, 
Say goodbye to your girlfriend and your boyfriend again. File another appeal. Turn 30. Get in a writing class. 2003. Win an award for a short story about your mom. Write your boyfriend doing his second tour in Iraq. Get a Dear Jean letter from him. Spend a lot of time in bed not sleeping. 2004. Realize that you've been in prison as long as you were free. Start forgetting what happened when. Isolate yourself. Stop writing letters. Stop getting mail. Stop making phone calls. Stop getting visits. Get three court dates that all get canceled. 2005. Move units again. Get a court date again. Find out your boyfriend got married again. Watch your aunt testify about your father raping your mother in front of you before you could speak. Get really, really sick right before court. Stay sick for months after. Wait for a decision on your appeal. Get another girlfriend. Go to the hole. Lose your job. Get out of the hole. Win an award for a poem. 2006. Write the judge once a week. Write your attorney once a week. Try to stop thinking about getting out. Hear that your boyfriend and his new wife had a baby. Gain 10 pounds from eating ramen noodles while studying. Get A's in your classes no matter how much effort it takes. Get two stories published in an anthology of prisoners' writings. Go the entire year without a girlfriend. Go the entire year without getting in trouble. Wonder if there may be a connection between these two phenomena. <laughs> 2007, lose your appeal. Hear that your boyfriend made lieutenant colonel. Throw yourself into your college classes. Walk laps outside for hours a day. Get a job in the chapel. Obsess over reorganizing the chapel library. Attend almost every church service regardless of denomination. Meditate a lot. Become calmer, become nicer, learn to quilt. <laughs> Start writing more. Win $200 for a poem about all the women who have died while you've been in prison. 2008. Get your prison industry's job back. 56 cents an hour. Work hard, study hard, study harder, get bored get lonely, get another girlfriend, stop spending time with your prison friends, stop writing your friends on the outside, stop worrying so much about getting visits, study when you have time, sleep when you have time, write a little, get some poems published in a literary journal. 2009. Throw yourself into being in love for what you tell yourself is the very last time. Wonder why it doesn't seem to be working. Stay up all night, every night, to get your homework done. Finally, graduate from college with high honors. 
find out that the U.S. Supreme Court is reviewing the constitutionality of giving juveniles life without parole. 2010. Stay up late at night when everyone else is asleep. Get up early because you can't sleep anyway. Hope that the juvenile life without parole law changes. Try to stay out of the hole. Write when you can stand reading your own thoughts. Think about getting out of prison every day. Think about your mom, wherever she is. Think about your brothers, wherever they are. Lose another girlfriend. Get beaten up one more time. Get another girlfriend. Wait for a visit. Wait for a letter. Wonder why the prison has started giving out used panties again. Try to think only about the next thing, whatever that may be. Try to hope. Try to breathe. Remember to breathe. Remind yourself to breathe. Pretend that you're really still alive. Good evening. My name is Khalil Cumberbatch, and I'm going to be reading an excerpt from Bombs by Ezekiel Caliguri in Minnesota Correctional Facility in Leno Lakes, Minnesota. They locked us down the same day somebody planted bombs that went off at the Boston Marathon. We all knew it was coming. We usually did. We got our two lockdowns a year no matter what, and that was without the ones we got as a result of the chaos that kicked off when it did. Routine lockups were anticipated for months sometimes, with the gossip mongerers anticipating them at every count. Most people liked them. I used to love them. There were breaks for guys from their prison jobs as welders or machinists with faces and clothes full of soot or janitors wiping snot and shit from the walls. There were breaks from all of the tension of maintaining aloof and indifferent personas hoping for some rest. There's a certain spiritual strength it takes to get by long stretches in the joint. That or a certain ignorance that at times can seem like the same thing. I often used my days locked in my cell as a time of spiritual restoration. I gave guys a break from having to talk to each other about all the same stuff we talked about every day. I used to need a break from my time and the trade-off came from the modest stress of getting your cell turned upside down. Now, it seemed like we were constantly going on and coming off of lockdowns every few weeks. And if we weren't, we were constantly preparing for the next one. We just had one a few months before. I think I had just lost patience somewhere in between them. I didn't need the break. I needed the time. This time, we just hoped we'd get our canteen before we, they dropped the notice of the shakedown. The house was so dry, people were paying four times the cost of ramen noodles and beef summer sausages. I didn't have food in my canteen bag except for a single noodle and a third of a roll of crackers and a sealed pack of chicken. We were just a day from getting our commissary when they slipped the memo on our bars at 9.30 the night before. It was the usual memo with the presumption printed on it, thank you for your cooperation. 
The news ignited the usual groans and guttural sounds in response to our never-ending string of disappointments. One guy screamed with frustrations until his voice went hoarse. You are an evil person, Sergeant. But it was mostly caught by the wind and carried away. Then there were those that used, used it to congratulate themselves. I told you, didn't I? I told you they were going to do this. I was, once, I was surrounded on both sides by guys that didn't speak during lockdowns. The first night I got uh, their bogus for this from my friend CF on my right. I didn't hear his voice much after that. CF and I became close because we shared the same desperation. He was more manic, I was more depressive. Sometimes it made us hate each other. Sometimes we used our illnesses as our swords to fight with each other, a tit for tat at our varying levels of strength and weakness. Sometimes it would be the other way around and it would be my mania, my mania challenging his depression. When we were in sync, we shared a vision of an artist collective and revival of all things that seemed to emancipate the people that lived in these cells a couple of generations before that had now been ignored and forgotten from the history of this place. We, all, we also shared a sense of time and sanity and how they inevitably run out. On my left was the old man China, who is really not an old man, but a, but a Laotinian man only a couple of years older than I am who ran around the South Minneapolis at the same time I did. He's 20 years of the way through his sentence. He wears an extra scratchy personality on the outside, probably just to protect his sanity. There was a whole cluster of us cloaked in our own cells with mountains on our, on our backs, connected amidst the catacombs. On the other side of CF was Jay, who was 14 when he got his life sentence. 26 when they gave it to him again. Next to Jay, there was Preach, who was 17 when he got his life sentence. Next to China was F, he was 17. Next to him, another 17 as well. Below us was the 20-year-old kid who was one of the first to get life without the possibility of parole. Next to him, Johnny, also 20 years into his life stint. The sting of time had left marks on all of us. They all still liked lockdowns, called them vacations. It was easier when I was younger and didn't think I deserved very much. I was 22 once, and these bricks didn't know me yet. With only 10 years left, these guys considered me halfway out the door. I kind of panicked. The timing was just bad and I wasn't prepared. I hardly had any food in my bag and what they fed us was the lowest and most vile form of food they could find, frozen and stashed somewhere for weeks or months. All of my water bottles were empty so I was consigned to the noxious chemical taste of unfiltered tap water from the old well flowing through 100 year old pipes. I had a bag of dirty laundry, hardly enough underwear to get me through the next few days. I was frustrated because I would lose typing days, because I would lose typing days just weeks from a deadline. I would miss poetry class on Wednesday night, one of the only nights in my week where I felt an ease with the strictures that held me in place. I figured though, if they shook us down right away in the morning, I could spend those days writing and maybe finish the book I was reading. 
I was reading A Right to be Hostile about the public schools to prison pipeline. It had taken me unusually long to read because I would get angry after a few pages and put it down. I might have the time now. It might keep me from obsessing over the food and the water and the treatment. I was better than this place and I had proved it to myself over and over. I told my family this so often they were tired of hearing about it. I had been through so many of these during my prison bid or, or bit or stretch or peace or whatever we call it. There was, there were something that I was ingrained in us. We used to cook meals in our hot pots and hand booze back and forth in the middle of the night. I had been through the 14 day lockdown when the old bruiser stomped that kid into a puddle. I had withstood a couple during the hottest weeks of summer. I had them where some wicked woman crouched down and counted our socks and dirty drawers and red letters from home when they brought when they bought dogs through, leaving paw prints on my blankets. I'd been in them during the holidays and during prison softball championships. I was locked down on my 32nd birthday and had a card signed by all of my friends sent down the tier one cell at a time. I'd had visitors turned away without explanation because of them. Guys even used to talk about the month-long routines going back to the 90s. The guys in B-West broke dozens of windows with cartons of milk during their lockdown in 04. Then winter came. In 1983, they broke 900 of them. They could be tough, but we created stories from them, part of the communal endurance that made us know we could still be human. Hopefully this one would be over in a few days and none of this would matter then. But then there was always the something I knew I shouldn't have but I thought I needed it anyway, something that if found, I would have to reschedule the next year of my life for. Most everyone has something that could possibly compromise them during these times. So I scrambled just like I always did during the first night of all the lockdowns I've ever been in to hide things. I was never sure of what some brand new young cop would try to book me with. I have made a bit of staying reserved and cautious about the explosive elements of myself, a bomb of unexpressed knowledge and feeling about all I have seen about the way people are treated. I just didn't know how long before it exploded from me. I wanted to vent and yell something ignorant out of my bars, but that would just make me sound like so many other guys shouting like they were children reacting to punishments from their parents. I am not a child, and they certainly are not my parents. I couldn't waste the spiritual energy. I needed it all. It made me feel soft, though, or scared, because I couldn't react the way my heart told me I should. I convinced myself I got past that scared shit a long time ago. I sat and watched TV. The same footage of the bombing continued to play in a loop. It, remind, it reminded me a little of 9-11. I was in a cell for that too. We waited in a limbo as all the networks brought their experts to, from abroad to shield their version of fear. We were supposed to be scared all over again. We were supposed to pull out our list of usual suspects and choose one or two to be angry at. My list was different from theirs. I tried to stay as detached from the footage as I usually was, 
as though from a world of fiction where these things didn't happen, where people didn't blow other people up. But I couldn't help but to feel the drop, the tapping of footsteps on the other side of the future, the rattling vibration of another inert shifting of how we see our world. The fear might have even come from the knowledge that these shifts happened so often now. Yeah? yeah. This guy is. I feel special. <laughs> Dear Jack, my spoon broke. My roommate moved out. The Olympics are starting. The dictator of North Korea got married. Albania has never won an Olympic medal. I have made a pair of plastic balls out of compressed plastic wrap. I only have three ballpoint pens left. I ate a big hot dog today with mustard and onions on it. There was an extra bun and I ate it with sauerkraut. I don't like the color blue. I wrote a poem about a little girl who drowned in a river. I like the rifleman. There is a turkey sandwich in a paper sack at the foot of my bed. I just saw the flag of Bosnia and Herzegovina for the first time in my life. I have a little yellow plastic bead shaped like an elephant. It is standing on a small red hexagonal box that sits on top of my TV set. The box is painted with glittery paint and has a picture of the Buddha on it. Inside the box is the 1,000th painted paper crane I folded wishing you would come visit me. My TV set has a 13-inch screen and a transparent case so you can see all the wires and components and electrical stuff inside. It has a real cathode tube. I bet none of your TV sets do. I would wear a kilt if I had one. I have an Arabic language CD, but no CD player. When I was six years old, I wore thick eyeglasses. I wish my sister Alyssa didn't have cancer. Today, when I was working on my math, I had trouble holding my left hand steady. Last Monday, I taught a yoga class. The paper I write letters to you on is 8 by 10.5 inches. I hate that. It's supposed to be 8.5 by 11 inches. I'm writing a computer program to solve systems of nonlinear equations. Since I don't have a computer, I'm writing it in my head. You are almost six years old, and all the Czech Republic athletes are wearing blue boots. My brother Bob used to live in the Czech Republic. I get very nervous sometimes. I don't believe that our eternal destiny is determined by what we do in this lifetime. The greatest clarinet player of all time was Henry Cuesta. I have written 721 pages of letters to you. It is possible to chew a piece of celery forever because his cellulose does not break down. A British guy won the Tour de France this year. 
My beard is long and the hair on my head is thin. I look in the mirror more than I used to. My favorite TV show is Cake Boss. I own two rubber bands. No, wait, it's three. I just remembered I have a rubber band around a bundle of 26 artificial sweetener packages. I visited Idaho once and saw the state capitol building. My watch battery went dead, so now sometimes I carry a digital clock in my pocket. The Indians are in third place. I heard that lightning starts on the earth and strikes upward to the sky. I like to trumpet solo in Penny Lane. Dogs are cool, I've decided. <laughs> Unless my sister accidentally wrote the same name twice, I recently had two grandnephews born who are both named Carson. The world is astonishingly beautiful. Happiness is easy. I love you, Chris.